KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on the sharp rise in youth suicides. There is a crisis. There is definitely a crisis. Parents and families are asking why. Being shown on Instagram and kids, young people being influenced by that. Young people facing depression, anxiety, and more. What are the signs? She did end up, like, cutting off contact with us in the end. Experts raise awareness, talk prevention, and give you resources for how to get help. He was shot and left for dead outside of his North Philadelphia home. But instead of retaliating against his robbers... I want them to know that I'm not looking for them. One man's journey to transform trauma into forgiveness. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the recent uptick in the rate of suicide among you. The story of an 11-year-old Philadelphia boy once bullied because of his weight who took his own life. The shock of his family made headlines and broke hearts last month, but he is not alone. There's also a rise of, of young people who look at suicide from a positive perspective. According to the CDC, suicide is the third leading cause of death in young people between age 10 and 24. Why? And what can we do to save the lives of young people suffering in silence? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. Dan Romer. He's a professor at UPenn who focuses on the connection between mental health and media. We also have Sarah Ashley Andrews. She's founder and CEO of Dare to Hope. It's a nonprofit focused on raising suicide awareness. And finally, we have Sasha Menino and Iris Perone Ames. They're teenagers who tragically lost their friend to suicide but are working to keep her legacy alive. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. This is a very serious topic. And Sarah Ashley, I'm going to start with you. Given the recent uptick, is there a crisis? There is a crisis. There is definitely a crisis. The suicide rates have doubled in certain age group and teenagers between 12 and 15, I believe. And they've tripled between 15 and 19. I think there's a lot of causes for this. I think that the, the media plays a role in it. Social media, I mean, there being a lack of education, a lack of resources for parents. And I also believe that there is an issue with counselors not being in the school in the school district. Dr. Romer, I mean, you heard Sarah Ashley mention this issue of social media. Could you talk about that and its impact on these rising numbers? Well, there's a lot of controversy about it, actually. Some people think that the rise in suicide is a result of all the uh, exposure to social media uh, because it removes kids from face-to-face interaction that could be helpful uh, it isolates kids is, is one of the hypotheses. I tend to think that what it's doing is uh, providing a way for some kids who are troubled to withdraw and uh, lose contact with others, maybe their parents and people who could support them. So I want to go to Sasha and Iris. You had a very good friend named Kalina. Tell us about her and what happened. Kalina was one of those people that was just like super nice. You know, you never felt judged around her like you... She was that one friend that if you ever had a problem or if you ever had a secret, you weren't afraid to go to her. You knew she would never, like, make fun of you or anything. Um, And so 
she would be open about any issues she had and that sort of thing. However, like, she did end up, like, cutting off contact with us in the end and isolating herself from us. And how old was she at the time? Um, She had just turned 14. 14 in the eighth grade at the time. And did you two ladies have any idea that she was so troubled? I um, knew that she had problems, but I never knew that it was going to become this that deep of a problem that she would actually do something drastic like that and I just like it I never expected it from anyone especially from her it was just came out like it came out of nowhere we were concerned because for a week or so uh we didn't hear from her at all and we were texting her but you know uh we never expected this to happen Sarah Ashley I mean that comment we never expected this to happen is the comment you always hear from parents, from friends, from siblings. Why is it always such a shock? Because we don't know what to look for. So you said that she did withdraw from you guys at a certain point, right? Yes. That's like a, one of the biggest signs, warning signs of suicide or depression, especially like if a child is being is acting agitated all the time or like just in a mood all the time. Like that's just... We can write that off as like, oh, childhood blues or them going through their normal teenager emotions, but we need to look into that. We need to really investigate what's really going on with my child because that is a sign. And I think a lot of times we just don't know what to look for. And that's the sad part. And I have to come to you, um, Dr. Dan, because there are shows out dealing with this. You see YouTube videos related to this. Are there specific things that you think influence, and what does it do to a young person's mind? A lot of the influences you're talking about, like especially Instagram, where recently there's been a lot of talk about self-harm being shown on Instagram and kids, young people being influenced by that. These are probably young people who are already vulnerable. They're already troubled. And these kinds of influences just make it worse for them because they make it seem like it's okay when you see a picture of someone who's harm themselves by cutting themselves, for example. It makes it look like, well, that's something people like me might want to do. 13 Reasons, which was a very popular show, really went into depth. It's sort of making it look like suicide was a solution because she was able to then get back at all the people that had bullied and and abused her. People react differently to this message. Some young people actually come out of that show feeling relieved and thinking, boy, I'm better off than she was. But there's a certain proportion of young people that do not come out of it better off because they feel as though maybe they can relate to her and that their situation is similar to hers. And so it gives them a model that isn't helpful. So I don't think that it's 13 reasons why I was the problem. I think the fact that we didn't have any conversation behind it is the problem. So what were some of the warning signs that, we, that her parents might have missed or her friends might have missed? Because there were things like when she changed her appearance. There were things like the loss of moving from one neighborhood to the other neighborhood and losing her friends. Like those are things that we should have been looking for and having a discussion around. You all have learned probably quite a bit in the past couple of years. How were you all able to handle this? We were immediately able to, you know, kind of fall back on our community and like gain support. And then we were also like the drive, for example, that we ended up creating. That was like a way to deal with it in itself because, you know, we were continuing her memory. We were doing something that we know she would have wanted to do. You know, it made us feel like, you know, she was still a part of our everyday lives and like 
we were doing good in her name. And explain exactly what it is you do. The drive is aimed at uh, collecting um, toiletries and sanitary products for the organization Cradles to Crayons. Which provides to children across the Philadelphia area. Yeah. And Kalina had done this. Um, well, she was working on something like this before she died. We were planning on creating the drive and then we went through with it and like really like dedicated it to her and like sort of upped it like in her name afterwards. And when you hear something like this, though, Sarah Ash, I mean, this is a young woman who's socially active, working on helping others. So without knowing like the whole story, when we're in the hustle and bustle of our daily lives, it's, it's easy kind of to not notice things, I guess is my right, correct word I want to use. Um, I did an interview one time and the lady was like, well, if my son, I wouldn't have known if my son was doing this because he's in his room and I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm cooking dinner. I'm preparing for the next day. I'm getting my clothes together. And it's like, yeah, we have to be more aware of what's going on, though. We have to ask questions. There has to be a time in your day where you allot time to talk to your children and ask direct questions to them, not just general, oh, how was your day? But, you know, how was your day? What happened? How did they make you feel? Why did it make you feel that way? Is there anything you can do differently next time to make you feel a different way? Like process the day with your child. That's important to really sit and process. Is that something that a lot of young people don't do? You know, stuff happens and then they just, it's impacted. They move to the next. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot, it's, it, that's something that adults don't do. I, we go through stuff and we don't sit and say, well, why did I feel that way? Or what made me feel that way? That's something that we need to do as parents and also as young people and adults, like just to learn how to process things. Because every day something happens. Every day we might take a hit. So how did that hit make you feel? How did that hit affect you? Yeah, and you guys have done some studies at UPenn to kind of look at this issue of how uh, media influences um, young people. Tell us about that. Well, you know, there's been a long-standing research tradition showing that being exposed to suicide uh, in either news stories or fictional stories can produce what's called a contagion effect. And it happens for people who are already, you know, thinking about ending their lives. And if they see that someone else who they might identify with has done that, it increases the chances they will try it as well. So there's been a concerted effort to get the news media, for example, what you guys do, to um, uh, be careful in reporting about suicide. Don't glamorize it. Don't make the people who uh, end up being victims of it look like heroes or, you know, the kind of person someone would want to emulate. So, and that that kind of strategy, I think, has been going on now for at least 10 years, and I think it has helped. But because the suicide rates are going up, it's probably not just due to uh, media stories. There's got to be more going on, I think. I don't even know how ending life becomes an option. When you see no way out. Like when you see no way out of what it is, then that becomes an option. When it's so dark that I can't even begin to even think about the light, then then suicide is an option. But how do we get, how do we stop people from getting to that point where there is no hope? Or there is no chance of ever seeing light again. Like We have to be more proactive with stopping people before they get there than reactive and trying to help other people after the fact. At the very least, my goal is for us to raise awareness so that people know that, you know, this is happening, um, that they need to connect with their kids. And maybe just maybe by somebody hearing it, they'll sit down and they'll ask different questions. You know, when they see someone withdraw or get angry instead of getting angry back, say maybe this, maybe we need to have a, maybe this person needs a hug or maybe Mm -hmm. we need to have a conversation. Or maybe we should go to therapy and see how that goes. That's a, a thing that we need to incorporate too, that you don't have all the answers as an adult or as a parent or as a friend, but there are professionals that 
can help us get to where we need to be when we think about living mentally well or at least not be suicidal. Is there any stigma among young people when it comes to going to therapy? It sort of depends. More and more I'm seeing people like being more open about it and like really like they'll, they'll, they'll even talk. They'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I, I'm going to therapy now. You know, uh, it's been really helpful for me. But I remember like a few years ago, like even a year or two ago, you know, it'd be kind of like, oh, yeah, I, I hate my therapy. And then all the kids would be like, oh, then I don't want to go. If you if you've experienced it and you hate it, then like I, it's not a solution for me either. So, yeah. So part of it is finding the right therapist, too, and having positive experiences. So are there resources that parents, that other young people can check out to say, hey, you know what, if we see something, hear something, uh, are there resources available? Well, there is the lifeline, and people are encouraged to call that because, you know, it can connect you with a local resource of some kind, especially if you're in a crisis. It's very hard to find a therapist. Um, It's a great idea, but, you know, we have a huge shortage there are only like 3,000 child psychiatrists, I think, in the whole country. And, and there aren't enough psychologists and there aren't enough social workers who deal with adolescents to really handle uh, all the kids that might be able to benefit from that. So we have a mental health system that is quite inadequate. I get right down to it. And, and then you mentioned in the schools, we don't have any, any resources hardly in schools. We have a school psychologist, you know, who has to deal with the whole school, so we have an under-resourced system in terms of the mental health of young people, which is a huge part of the problem. And I got to point out the fact that, Sarah Ashley, you started um, Dare to Hope because you had a very similar, ins- you know, mm-hmm. to these young ladies. Right. So my friend um, took his own life, so I decided to create Dare to Hope. I just want to encourage you because it does help to keep their legacy alive, to know that you're making an impact, and also to pr- try to prevent it from happening to anybody else. So I just wanted to... Salute you guys for doing that because that's a major step and, and it's hard. And please provide your website because I know you go into schools. Yeah. Dare to Hope, our program right now is in five schools in the city of Philadelphia. We're definitely looking to be in more schools because there is a shortage with school counselors. There's about 325 school counselors in the city of Philadelphia. So that's like one counselor for every 390 kids. So when you think about being proactive, it's hard to be proactive when you have all of these kids that you have to deal with on your caseload. Um, so to have Dare to Hope come in to be a support to the youth, um, is our goal because we want to be proactive. So our website is www.dare-the-number-two-hope.org. And on our website, Cherry, there are resources for Healthy Minds Philly. There are resources for the Department of Behavioral Health. There are hotlines for local hotlines. And there also is the Child Crisis Center. So if your child is in crisis, you can go to the center, click on the link and go to the center. And so, ladies, if people want to support you to help you keep Kalina's legacy alive and help you um, with your drive, how can they support you? Um, I would say the easiest way is we have a GoFundMe page set up. Type in GoFundMe, like Kalina's Cabinet. If you, like, donate money, then it ends up being donated to uh, Cradles to Crayons. Thank you to all of our guests. If you know someone who is in a crisis, call the Teen Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Next up, he was shot and left for dead, and instead of retaliating... He's letting it go. It's not something that I just woke up and said, you know, I'm going to forgive. The methods and reasons why a North Philadelphia man has embarked on a crusade of forgiveness. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? 
Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. We have a yellow logo with the words Flashpoint with Cherry Gregg. Please subscribe. And when you get through with that, once you listen, please, please, please leave us for a review and rate this podcast. We need your reviews to take us to the top. And if you have issues that make you hot under the collar, let us know. Our handle is Flashpoint Show on Twitter. Now let's get to it. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets our listeners hot under the collar is gun violence and the retaliation that many times follows. But one man, he's been making headlines after he was shot in the back last November and left to die on the street. Luis Berrios has buried the need for revenge and instead... He is spreading a message of forgiveness. Luis, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much. We're in your house. We came to you in North Philadelphia. First, how are you doing? I'm healing a lot better than what I was maybe a month ago. So I'm just trying to heal, move forward. And I know you're trying to move forward. And I know telling the story of what happened last November has to be tough. But please take us to that day so we can then take you to today this all started on the 11th of november um it was the eagles game uh dallas versus eagles uh this this would have been my first this was my first football game uh friend of friend of mine and i uh went to a tailgating party went to the eagles game was a late game and on our way back home you know caught the train uh we walked from the train to my house and while i was at my door i had the key in my door was at my door, two men uh, were standing behind me. They just appeared from, I don't know, from nowhere and wanted to rob me. They told me that, you know what this is. And as I turned around, they shot me in my back. Wow. And so you were left on the street. How did someone discover you? When I was shot, I kind of stumbled to the middle of the street. But in that process of me trying to walk to the middle of the street, I called 911. So I took my phone out. It's super crazy because I think about it now of like how calm I was. And I was calm because I wanted them to hear me. I, you know, I didn't want them to talk. So when I called 911, I said, my name is Louis Berrios. I'm at 4012 North 13th Street. And I've been shot in my back in attempted robbery. And I said, please send somebody. I don't want to die. And then I put the phone against my chest. And at that time, my knees were touching the ground. And I just was falling over. I felt myself passing out. Yeah, and he Mm. woke up and you were in the hospital. So, yeah, right before I I passed out, I I did. I I, I told, you know, I said, God, I don't want to die. Please don't let me die. And when my head, as soon as my head touched the concrete, I was out. I was told officers picked me up, dragged me in the car. I remember opening my eyes at that time, them struggling to get me into the backseat of their police car. And the next time I woke up, I was gotten out of surgery. Um, I think surgery was over 12 hours. Since November, I mean, you were in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Were you angry? What were you feeling in your mind laying in that hospital bed with tubes and, and stitches and open wounds and all that stuff? So in the beginning, when I, when I woke up, I sat right up when they took the tube out of my mouth. When I looked around, I didn't know where I was at. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I feel like I'm in a psych ward. And I remember telling myself that. And I seen my sisters and my dad. And I was like, what's going on? 
and um, they said you were shot, and I passed out. Maybe like two days later, I was in an ICU, and I just remember being scared uh, and just dreaming that I was, that I got shot, dreaming somebody was trying to rob me, or dreaming that I was fighting, and in the process of fighting, I, I was I would get shot. So I would jump up every night for about oh, a few weeks. I would jump up and like, oh my gosh, somebody shot me in my dream, and I would touch myself and feel that I've you know was in a hospital and I was shot. But anger, I think. Not anger, more scared. I, I, I was really, really, really scared for a long time. And then I think I became like super upset and didn't understand like, why would you want to shoot me? I'm a very giving person. I like to help people. Um, I worked for nonprofit in the past and working with homeless youth. So being shot for something I had, I just couldn't put that puzzle together. I know that night them two men, if they really need it, they probably would have been in my house and I would have like, let me help you. It's just who I am. So um, at one point I remember being so angry because I was in so much pain and I, I would look down. I had so many different marks and so many different tubes. In the beginning I had um, five tubes coming out my abdominal area. I had a colostomy bag and I had a, a massive hole from my chest cavity all the way down to under my belly. And I think at that time when I got mad, I just I had to find a different outlet, you know. And, and I kept thinking about, man, God answered my prayer. Like, God really answered my prayer. I asked not to die and to, to save me, and he did. I think at that time I was telling myself, like, you can't can't be angry. You can't go for retaliation. You, I just couldn't, you know, just being a spiritual person and being like, my maker really saved my life, you know, and who am I to go back out there and get shot again or shoot somebody? You know, I could have been a statistic. I could have been, could have added to the numbers of, of, of gun violence, of shootings, of homicides. But mm. I picked a whole different other path and I was like, I need to write a letter. <laughs> it took me a few months, but yeah. Yeah. So you were in the hospital, Temple University Hospital, mm -hmm. and you pen and paper somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you wrote to the men who shot you. Yes. What did you What did you write? So, um, in the beginning, it my letter actually started. It, it when I read it, it sounded like really angry, and um, I, I kept crumbling the paper and starting over. And I got to the point where I was like, I want them to know that I'm not looking for them. My friends are not going to be looking for them. I'm more hurt than angry. I'm in pain. I wanted to let them know that I was hurt to even see my mom cry and be in pain. I wanted to let them know that I forgave them and that I hope they, could, they can forgive themselves and move on with their life and um, so the day they meet their maker, they'll be okay. You know, God can bless them, you know. I didn't need to walk around with so much anger, so much hate. Yeah. This is a second opportunity in life. If I didn't do the first go round, I was going to do it this go round. But you didn't just write them a letter. Then you took that message of forgiveness yeah. on the street. Tell us, tell us what you've done. So I wrote this letter. Temple made 500 copies for me. And I went around my community uh, with some um, other activists and friends, and we passed out this letter. And it wasn't just it wasn't just to try to place this in my shooter's hands, but for people to read it, and not just young people, not just people who sit in the street, but the older community and anybody to read it. I really wanted the message for younger people was 
if you have any kind of thought of doing something, robbing somebody or being so angry trying to shoot somebody, I wanted them to know that you would affect somebody's life. You would change somebody's whole entire life and you would change your life. And it's not worth it. It, it, it isn't. Um, on my letter, you see a, a, a picture of right when I got out of surgery, you mm-hmm. know, because I want them to see, you know, there was the tubes. I wanted them to, to really question their actions before they did it. Just because you spend your last $250 on a gun, you know, a gun can change somebody's whole entire life. Because, and I want to, because I want people to really understand, last year we had 1,200 shootings. Mm. 1,200. And so, you know, I just want to explain what guns can do to a human body. So you had how many surgeries? Four different surgeries. Four different surgeries. Mm -hmm. You lost how much weight? About 55 pounds. Um, My last surgery was April 15th. And that surgery, I can say, out of all the surgeries, it really took a lot from me. I was in a lot of pain. They had to reconstruct my whole abdominal area. So when I was shot, it went through my lung. It hit my intestines twice. Um, One bullet hit my intestines twice. My kidney, my bladder, half of my pancreas was gone. So this last surgery was to... um, reverse my colostomy, and repair my intestines that was damaged. Mm -hmm. So it took a lot, and it was actually putting my muscles back together so they can heal back together. And so despite all of this, because I just wanted you to describe that, because I don't Mm -hmm. think that people really understand, because we rarely talk about the people who survived gun violence. We always talk about all the homicide deaths, and there Mm -hmm. were over 300 last year. But we rarely talk about the 1,200 who were injured. Yeah. And and that... um, and so, despite all of this trauma to your physical body, to your mind, mm-hmm. PTSD, bad mm-hmm. dreams, all of this, you still choose to forgive. Yes. Um, and, and what I say is forgiveness isn't easy. It's not something that I just woke up and said, you know, I'm going to forgive. One, I had to work on that. I had to pray. I had to really open up my heart because it was hard. It's not easy. A lot of people say, well, how did you forgive? Somebody shot you and left you for dead. And yes, they did. And it and I had to learn it really, really quick. You know, I tell everybody, you, you learn it as you go, you know. Um, and it's something you practice on. It's like anything you want to learn and want to conquer. And it's something that I had to work on. And it takes a lot of therapy as well. I know one thing when it comes to, you know, um, and I guess black and brown people when it comes to like mental health, it's a it's a stigma, it's a setback and it's needed. You you need to be able to talk to somebody, you need to be able to get help, somebody that you trust, you know. Yeah. And it and it's not easy. You know, I, I had dreams for months every day. I would lay here and I would wake up, you know, making the same noise that I made when I got shot. It was like that, uh and I would wake up, you know, just making that noise, like feeling, you know, every day in my dreams, I got shot. Yeah. You know, there was times that I would dream that I'm in my, my own house, this house here where I got shot at, and I'm fighting for my life. And I can see the person, and I can feel it, and I would wake up. And yeah. there was times that my mind was closing, like I was losing. I felt like I was losing it, and I would have breakdowns. So it's not easy, you know, it, and, you know, I hope that, when people hear my message or read my my letter, that they don't think, "Oh man, this is easy." He just did that. No, mm-hmm. it takes a lot. Is it more? Is it for you too? It's for me. It's for everybody. 
Yeah. It's healing. It's healing when I, you know, when I talk to people and they tell me uh, I inspire them and they're so happy and or or I can even talk to them like I can never do that. And I'm like, you know, do you know what it's like to sit on the side of a street and not one person come out in your neighborhood? Like so, it's it's in your heart that you just know I'm not going to survive this because there's nobody around, you know. And nobody and came out. Nobody came out. And I laid there and, and I passed out and. You know, I, I thought about my family. I thought about my mother in Florida and, you know, how I wasn't able to, you know, tell people bye and that I love them. One of the things we definitely talk about is that it's the, the gunshots are Trump traumatic, mm-hmm. but not just to you, but to the neighborhood, to yes. your mother, yeah, to your friends, to your roommate. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like everybody around you are also traumatized by your being victimized in this way it, it and it is you know my mom calls me all the time and you're not out there late you're not coming in late you know and it shouldn't be like that you know i should be able to live my life and you know and my family not worry you know what time i'm gonna come yeah. into my house you know and it's been a struggle i've been trying to leave this house and trying to move but um things is hard you know i've when I say they changed my life, you know, I had a really, really good job and they're waiting on me. And I just got a text from them this past weekend. Like, we miss you. We want you to come back, you know. And I'm out of work for a year and a half and trying to heal. Because you can't only, work because you keep going yeah. back and forth to surgery. You're, you're not in. It's not just winded. a physical. Yeah, yeah. It's not a physical thing. It's, a, it's also a mental thing. It's, it's, it's not more. It's not, you know, one more than the other. It, it's. You know, so I have to get myself together and, um, yeah, you know, and, and try to move forward. And, and so when you think about the future of this movement of forgiveness, as you are still, you know, healing mm-hmm. emotionally, physically mm-hmm. in this, what do you hope in, that happens here? Well, I mean, people ask me that and I always say, I want to inspire, I want to inspire a million people and save two million lives. If I can inspire a million people, they can inspire one of their friends. And just spread this message of forgiveness. Yeah. And have they been caught at all? No. So they're just still out here. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you were to, if they were to hear this or, you know, they may have seen the stories. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Are you hoping that they change their lives, turn themselves in? I don't know. I feel like I did what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And it's up to them. They made a really, really bad decision, and they affected a lot of people. And my story's not going to be buried. It's they're going to hear it, and if they turn themselves in, yeah, it's a plus. If they don't, I hope they change their lives. And this maybe sound kind of crazy, and if you hear this and you need help, I got you. That heart of yours is so big and so pure. (laughs) So, Luis Barrios, thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Next up, they're a safe haven for our four-legged friends. A lot of them come to us as victims of cruelty and neglect. The New Jersey-based nonprofit's effort to bring health and forever homes to animals in need. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast 
By downloading the Radio.com app, all you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now, we here at KYW, we're all about community, and that includes our pets. One organization in New Jersey is dedicated to rescuing and rehabilitating homeless animals until they are ready for their forever homes. And they also have a low-cost spay-neuter clinic that helps pet owners in our region. Here to tell us more about Animal Alliance is founder and executive director, Annie Trinkle. Annie, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much. Very glad to be here. So wonderful. So when you founded Animal Alliance, what was the problem that you sought to solve? Well, I was a business person working in Manhattan, and I saw a very simple economic equation. There were too many pets in one location and not enough pets in another location. So I decided to found Animal Alliance so that we could bring animals in great density areas like Philadelphia to New Jersey for adoption. Wow. And so you see where the need is and you put people together. And since that time, we've expanded beyond Philadelphia. But that was how we started back in 2001. Wonderful. And so what has been the result? Each year, we adopt out about 500 animals. A lot of them come to us as victims of cruelty and neglect. So we have to rehabilitate them, get them back on their feet, so to speak. And then we adopt them into loving homes. And so you guys get animals in all sorts of conditions. That's true. We get animals a lot of times. Again, we really do try to focus our efforts on victims of cruelty and neglect that might be passed over by other agencies due to the costs involved. We are fortunate that we have an in-house team of veterinarians. So a lot of our work we're able to do in-house, but we do use outside vets as well. And so how do you get the pets that have been injured? We don't work with individuals generally. In an emergency, we'll take in a crisis intake, but we usually work directly with high-volume shelters where pets have been brought there injured by animal control or, you know, the shelter's overcrowded. That's how they'll call us. And so they'll bring the pet to you all, Mm -hmm. and you all will seriously nurse the pet back to health. That's right. A lot of times those animals are sickly puppies or adult dogs with a broken leg or someone's been burned or there's been some other monstrous acts of cruelty. And a lot of times it is just that there is no more room at the inn, so to speak, at the shelter where they are currently. And I saw that taking care of pets and sometimes in surgeries Mm -hmm. and all sorts of types of repairs that need to be happening with these animals is very expensive. It is very expensive. And we have to stand on our own financially. So we don't get any, you know, state or local grant funding or anything like that. We have to fundraise ourselves. So we do send out a, a newsletter a couple of times a year. And we do rely on the kindness of our donors to support our work. Wonderful. And then you have a a low-cost spay-neuter clinic. Why is that important, number one? In our business, we have a saying, you can't adopt your way out of the problem. Unfortunately, the number of adoptable animals exceeds the number of people that want to adopt. So in order to solve the problem at its root cause, really affordable, accessible spay-neuter is the key. So that people that may not have $500 to spay or neuter but may have $100 are able to get their pet fixed and stop pet overpopulation at the root cause which is unwanted puppies and kittens. Because there's no one to take them in. There's no one to take them in, exactly. And people get in over their head very quickly. And, you know, they love animals, but before they kind of get over one litter, another one's on the way. And you guys have a really cool name for your clinic. Planned Pethood. That's right. (laughs) Name says it all. Yes. Planned Pethood. And so tell us a little bit about you, because you sparked my interest, worked in Manhattan, Mm -hmm. in corporate America, I understand, and then decided to hit the eject button. Why? (laughs) Well, it's true. I had 15 great years in New York City wearing suits and being a kind of, I guess, normal person. But I developed a love for animals later in life. I'd grown up in New York with no pets. And my husband and I acquired our first pet back in 1995. And I just 
went to the dark side, as my husband says. I fell head over heels in love with my pet, and I went to adopt my next pet at a shelter, saw the problem, and thought to myself, I can actually apply my business acumen to this problem and help. And so you kind of like just jump ship and yeah. have been doing that ever since. Exactly. In 2001, I took a one-year leave of absence from my corporate job at Abbott Laboratories. And the next thing I knew, I decided this is it. I have to start Animal Alliance. I have to start a shelter. When you see the outcome of your efforts, how does it make you feel? You know, seeing these new beginnings for animals and knowing that you were the bridge between like misery and happiness, it's extremely rewarding. And that's what keeps all of us in animal welfare going back for more. Yeah. And so advice to families, make the case for rescues. From a moral, ethical, philosophical level, you're saving a life and you're not just saving the life of that animal, but the the next animal that can take that cage in a shelter. But from a logical standpoint, mutts, as we call them, are so much hardier than you see so many golden retrievers with cancer and golden doodles with bad hips and that kind of stuff. And we hear from a lot of devastated families who thought they were doing the right thing by purchasing a perfect purebred only to find out that it had a lot of genetic problems. So our little like mutts are pretty darn hardy. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> hardy mutts. Because mm-hmm. a lot of those those genetic defects are kind of like weeded out. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you have great overall gene pool. Really, it's like a nice mix. Not saying that all purebreds have problems, but uh, definitely you can't go wrong with a hardy little mutt. And so how do you match up families? Well, we really pride ourselves on a good matching process. We get anywhere from like zero to three or four returns a year. And that's usually due to a change in the household, like divorce or a new baby or something. So we just try to look at what kind of lifestyle the family has, if they're active and they hike all the time, or are they kind of couch potatoes that like to stay around and watch movies? And The right family exactly. for the right, right. Uh, pet. A couch potato family probably doesn't want a Jack Russell Terrier that's going to be jumping off the walls and need two hours of exercise a day. But the one that, that likes the job exactly. would love a little Jack Russell. Love yes. a little running partner. So we, you know, we try our best. Wonderful. So what can people do to support your organization? The best start point of, is our website, which is Animal Alliance NJ, as in New Jersey, dot org. And from there, you can volunteer. You can apply to adopt a pet. You can also make a donation online. We always need financial donations. And we also work with a lot of groups like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts that do supply drives for us. We're always in need of pet food and laundry detergent, those kinds of things. So there's a lot of ways you can help beyond just financial or adopting. Yeah. A lot in between and all that's on our website. So check them out. Check out Animal Alliance at AnimalAllianceNJ.org. I want to say thank you so much, Annie you, Trinkle, Sharon. for coming in to Flashpoint. And thank good you. luck with all the wonderful work you're doing thank to you. find forever homes for our pets. Thank you very much. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Indian social activist Mahatma Gandhi once said, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>